Today, we're going to have part two of this uh, sermon series on Leviticus as we dig into this strange, wild, ancient book. This is your study guide. You can pull that out if it's helpful um, to you. And uh, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can open that to Leviticus as well. Last week, I started this sermon series by talking about how as weird a book as it is, and I know, y'all, I know that it's weird. When I was an agnostic and an atheist, Leviticus was the first place that I went to bash the Bible, to bash Christianity, because parts of it just don't make sense and don't seem to apply to life today. But at the heart of Leviticus, it is undeniable that part of Leviticus is about God's desire for us to live healthier lives. So Leviticus's point, part of, of the point of Leviticus, is to say that your salvation is not just a spiritual issue. That if you're, you know, spiritually saved and your heart loves God, but you don't take care of your body, then there's something off there. That there is a physical consequence to the salvation of God. And so um, God calls these people out, these Israelites, these Hebrews out 3,000 plus years ago in the, in the wilderness to be healthier, to be stronger, to be more able to respond to his, um, to his mission and his purpose for their lives. Now, we read it and think it's just crazy, but when you look at it, um, I think when you look at it by comparison to the other kinds of documents that existed back then that tried to do the same thing Leviticus tried to do. For example, there's a, a, a document called the Papyrus Evers. It's, uh, it's, it's well known now, and, and it comes from Egypt from about the same time. It's a contemporary document. And it was also kind of a health and holiness code, just like um, Leviticus uh, was and, and is, right? So, um, but there's differences, and what you'll see when you compare to other contemporary documents is that Leviticus was light years ahead of its time. It looks antiquated to us, but at its time, in its place, it was ahead and progressive, right? And so uh, the papyrus Ebers, for example, in, in Egypt said if you had a splinter, a simple splinter in your finger that somebody had to rub worm guts and donkey feces in your, in your splinter. That doesn't sound like that would work. I'm, not a, I'm no doctor, <laughs> but that doesn't sound like a good cure for a splinter. Uh, if you were going bald, to, if you had male pattern baldness, you had to mix together the fat of six different animals, one of which was a hippopotamus, if you can imagine some poor bald guy hunting a hippopotamus <laughs> and trying to harvest the fat, mix it together with all the other animals, and then and you had to smear it on your head, uh, adding insult to injury, I think, is what that is. If you had cataracts in ancient Egypt, the papyrus Ebers insisted that you had to, to drop six drops in your eyes, six drops of cow urine. Uh, that's how you had dealt with cataracts. And so there was not so much really a scientific health code as much as it was just kind of, you know, black magic or witch doctory kind of uh, uh, homeopathic stuff for thirty for three thousand years ago, right? And so it didn't really make a lot of a lot of sense. Um, but Leviticus, by comparison, looks genius. I mean, some of the prescriptions in Leviticus are are obviously common sense ideas, like don't eat a bunch of pork, like before the FDA and before refrigeration, and you know the ways that we preserve and prepare pork. Probably wasn't a great idea to eat a bunch of pork. Pigs are disgusting creatures, as we talked about last week. One thing it says in Leviticus eleven thirteen is don't eat a black vulture. That sounds good. Like that's a that's a good rule. Anybody want to eat a black vulture? You've seen what those things eat. No, you don't want to eat a black vulture. Chapter seventeen is all about not drinking blood. Are y'all in for that one? Like that's a pretty good idea to not drink blood. There's probably 
you know, uh, there's probably germs and things in blood, and it doesn't taste great, and, and let's not drink blood. Chapter 18, verse 14 of Leviticus, again, comparing it to the papyrus Ebers and other documents like it, said uh, in 1814, do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have relations with her. She is your aunt. Now, I don't care where you live or when. That's solid. That's solid advice. She is your aunt. Therefore, you should not have relations with her. That's, that's good counsel. <laughs> so uh, the message in Leviticus uh, really is, I think, ahead of its time, ahead of its time, but it also reveals something about God to us. God wants his people to be healthy and strong for some purpose. And that's where we get to today. Because the healthy and strong piece is just a means to an end. It only matters insofar as it leads God's people towards something called holiness. And if you ask me really what Leviticus is about, it's, it's partially health, but it's entirely about this thing called holiness. Uh, 150 times God uses the word holy um, in, in Leviticus. It is uh, the, the most often repeated phrase in the book is be holy. But the truth is, I don't think many of us really know what that means. Like if I, if I asked you for a definition of holy, you'd probably say something religious. You'd probably say something like, you know, uh, it means to be meditative or contemplative or, you know, the Dalai Lama or the, the Pope or what does it mean to be holy? We, we don't know. It's not a word that we use unless there's like another four-letter word after it. Like that's the only time in our day-to-day lives that we really use the word holy. And if that's where you're at, I don't want you to feel judged. I just want you to know you're in the majority, not just today, but, but even in Levitical times. Like the people that, that received the law from God, they didn't know what holy meant either. They were illiterates. They were nomads. Remember before they were slaves in Egypt? They were just nomadic tribes wandering in the, the, the wilderness from place to place. They, they didn't have a Bible to read, right? And they, even if they did, they couldn't read it. And so when God says be holy, it's the first time they've ever heard this. And this word holy in, in Hebrew, it's Kadesh, and God's like, be Kadesh, Kadesh, Kadesh. And they're like, okay, we get it, but, you know, I don't think he gets it, so could you explain it for us just for him? You know, like, like they, they just had no clue or concept of what God could mean with be holy, be Kadesh. And so that's what God does for the rest of Leviticus. God tries to illustrate what a Kadesh life, what a holy life would actually look like. Um, And and so uh, that's what the rest of Leviticus is. Kadesh uh, appears over 150 times. And the root of this word, Kadesh, is another Hebrew word that means to cut. To cut or to separate. To cut or separate. So biblically speaking, to live holy is to be a cut above something or to separate yourself from some status quo. So holiness, when we talk about this today, y'all, holiness is not about religion. I am not a holy man because I'm a religious leader. Right? That's not what this is. Erase that from your mind. Holiness is not about even morality necessarily. Holiness is not about living holier than thou or pretending to be holier than thou. Real holiness is reflecting the heart or the holiness of God in your daily life by separating yourself from sin and aspiring to live a cut above. 
So our holiness in this way, number one, it reflects the heart of God. Our holiness begins with the holiness of God. And so if you're curious or or doubtful about where to begin living a holy life, it begins with God and understanding that God is entirely holy. Be holy as I am holy is repeated again and again and again in Leviticus. It begins with the holiness of God. What does it mean for God to be holy? Well, it means understanding that God is a cut above us. God is on a different plane than us. God is not like us. He's not your best friend. He's not your boyfriend. He's not like your teddy bear. He's not Santa Claus. God is entirely other. And you have to look no further really than the first two chapters of Genesis or just look around you and observe the universe he created to understand just how other he is. We can't begin to wrap our heads around the complexity and the sheer size of this universe that he made and set into motion. And yet he set it into motion and, and stands outside of time and space. The biggest thing you can imagine could never contain God in the slightest. And so God is entirely other. God is greater. He's holy. And, and to understand holiness is to uh, uh, begin to understand the holiness of God first. And then it means separating yourself from sin in order to strive toward that holiness. And this is where it gets tricky, y'all, right? Because sin is what? How would you define it? Separation from God. I was going to say fun. Sin is fun, (laughs) right? Can I get a hallelujah? If it wasn't fun, it wouldn't be a problem. Sin is great. You're totally right, by the way, but sin is also fun. Sin is, it feels good to sin, and to say no to sin is hard. And so when God is, is laying this out in, in Leviticus, in, in the law, he's saying, don't do all of these things that everybody else is doing, mind you. Everybody else around you is doing these things, but you don't do these things because I've created you to separate yourself from that so that you can aspire to live a cut above. God is always calling people who believe in him to live differently. Holy living is aspirational. To live holy is to seek the heart of God more than anything else. You want to be like God more than you want to sin. You love God more than you love the sin in your life. So you can say no to more and more of this stuff and say yes to more and more of this stuff. And every day you aspire to that above all else. And that becomes the goal you're reaching for. So the essential question that's presented by Leviticus, not just then, but to all of us and to you today, I believe, is how are you living differently? Instead of merely surrendering to the status quo and living like others around you and measuring yourself based on how others around you are living and doing, instead of settling for mediocrity, how are you aspiring to the greatness of God? How are you aspiring toward the mercy and the love and the heart of God? Instead of just trying to be like everybody else, how are you trying to be holy? I'm going to read this focus passage, and then we'll uh, we'll keep talking about this idea of holiness. This comes from Leviticus chapter 20. It's in your uh, study guides if you want to use that. It's also on the screen. And, um, hey, it's also in your Bible if you want to use your Bible. Uh, Leviticus 20, verses 22 to 24 and verse 26. This is God speaking through Moses. 3,000 plus years ago. You must keep all my rules and all my regulations and do them so that the land I'm bringing you to where you will live won't vomit you out. You must not follow the practices of the nations that I'm throwing out before you because they did all these things and I was disgusted with them. 
But I have told you, you will certainly possess the fertile land. I'm giving it to you to possess. It is a land of milk and honey. I'm the Lord your God, who has separated you from all other peoples. And you must be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy. And I've separated you from all the peoples to be my own. So you see this idea of separation. This is hard for us, because we don't like to think of ourselves as separate from the world. I think, especially at a church like the story, we like to think of ourselves as a relevant church where we're cool being out in the world. We have events at bars and, you know, we're that church that you can invite your cool friends to. You know, that's what we aspire to be sometimes. And I think that's still okay. I think it's still okay for you as a believer, as a Christian, to be out in the world, among the people, in the culture. But listen, you have to ask yourself at some point, who is influencing whom? Am I living aspirationally and, and maybe inspiring others to do the same? Or am I living down to the expectations and norms of the status quo? So when you're living in the world and working in the world and relating to people in the world, you have to ask yourself, who is inspiring or influencing whom? All right? So uh, in this passage, you see God referencing these other nations that were doing unholy things. They were just living down to the status quo, right? So God's referencing these other nations living down to the status quo. And one status quo thing that was happening back then was child sacrifice. And I know it's an awful, awful thing to think about. And we've got beautiful children here in the room right now. And I just cannot imagine this. But listen, it was the norm back then in that region. And there was this this God named Molech, and people would take their children, their babies, and sacrifice them. Human child sacrifice to this God, Molech. Why? Because Molech, uh, you just could never make him happy. I mean, Molech was always mad. So you'd bring him grain, and bad stuff would still happen to you. You'd bring him animals, and bad stuff would still happen. You'd burn incense, and bad stuff would still happen. And so what are we going to do to satisfy this God who's angry with us? And what's more sacred than your own offspring? So this is a norm that was happening throughout the region. And God says explicitly in Leviticus 18.21, you will not sacrifice your children to Molech or to any god. In another part of Leviticus, he says, I will never ask you to sacrifice a child to me. Why? Because this God is calling us to live a step above, a cut above, to aspire towards something higher, something greater. Always he's calling us to do that. Leviticus seems outdated to us. I'm telling you, in its time, it was a progressive document. And, uh, these other nations uh, that surrounded the Hebrews at the time, they had systems of justice. And the norm in justice systems was retribution. It was revenge. It was if somebody steals something from you, you take double from them. If somebody takes a cow from you, you take two cows from them. If somebody hurts your sister, you, you hurt two of the women in their tribe. And then in Leviticus, God introduces this brand new idea of an eye for an eye. An eye for an eye. If somebody hurts you, you just, you just punish them by taking from them exactly the same amount that they took from you. And that became the rule. In 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 18, God said, do not seek revenge. Do not bear a grudge against anyone, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now wrap your head around how radical a statement that would have been 3,000 years ago with roving tribes of, you know, warlords and gangs that were uh, taking their aggression out on each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. Totally different idea. 
Another norm in those times were how to treat your immigrant neighbors, right? How to treat refugees and, and how, how to treat uh, outsiders. And it was commonplace in these cultures for outsiders and immigrants to be treated as slaves, to be made slaves, or at least treated as infidels and enemies, you know, that, that are encroaching upon our territory. Listen to what God told the people to do 3,000 plus years ago in 1933. Of Leviticus, God says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat him. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. In other words, don't forget who you are, who you were, where you've come from. And I am the Lord your God. In other nations, um, poverty was seen as just a, a, it, with a lot of contempt. It was, it was seen as a scar on the society's, um, on society's image, right? It was seen as a curse, and the poor were left to fend for themselves. Listen how God tells his people to treat those who are in poverty 3,000-plus years ago. In Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, God says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. What's he saying? Don't work for max profit. Don't work for max profit. He says, leave some of the stuff out there in your fields unharvested. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. This is, this is light years ahead of its time. This is ahead of our time. This is the best welfare system I've ever heard of. Because you're still making sure the poor are taken care of, but you're also giving the poor and their families the dignity of a day's work. You're not doing it for them. It says, leave it in the fields and let those fathers who are down on their luck take their kids out and, and harvest with their kids and show their kids what a day's work looks like. That This makes sense. You can criticize Leviticus all you want, but I think we're just being chronological snobs and we dismiss it offhandedly as being uh, as being out of date and, and, uh, and, and archaic. Because whether it's how we treat children or women or immigrants or the poor or the sick or criminals, God is always calling his people in Leviticus and even today to aspire. God still does this today. Anyone who believes in God is compelled to look up to God to try and aspire to be like God and his holiness and to say no to some of the other things uh, like the status quo in the world around us. Now, I know it's easy to look at Leviticus and just tear it apart if you're of a skeptical mindset and say it's irrelevant. And I know uh, that's what many of us are tempted to do. We're clearly, uh, we're clearly of that mind in this cynical world today. And I know it's clear that we're not bound by the letter of the law anymore. Christians don't follow those rules necessarily. You're free to go out and have crawfish for lunch after this and not worry about going to hell for it because the letter of the law of Leviticus doesn't stand or apply anymore necessarily. However, that doesn't mean Leviticus doesn't apply anymore. Something about the heart of God is revealed, something very important, something so important that Jesus stood on the foundation of Leviticus and took Leviticus very seriously when he carried out his ministry. And if Leviticus was important to Jesus, I'm pretty sure it should be important to us. In fact, I would go so far as to say you can't really take Jesus seriously unless you take Leviticus seriously too. 
Not necessarily the letters of the law, but the heart that undergird and support the letter of the law. In his uh, most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, y'all know the one I'm talking about, starts with the Beatitudes and the Blessed R's and in Matthew 5, and it runs throughout Matthew 7. This sermon is entirely predicated on Levitical law. Everything he says is, is dependent upon Leviticus. He starts it this way in Matthew 5. This is Jesus. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, unless heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Let's skip ahead to the next slide, if you don't mind. Uh, I'll start here. For, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, those are the guys that kept the letter of the law the best. They were the best at behaving. It says, unless your righteousness surpasses the best behaved, rule followers, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't like that at all. I'll just be honest with you. I, I would almost, given this, if Jesus is saying that the Pharisees aren't even righteous enough and we have to follow the rules better than the Pharisees, I'm not sure I like this at all. That, that would seem to be a call to follow the letter of the law, which would be a deal breaker for most of us. Have you ever read the letter of the law? Like 613 strict, rigid rules about how to be holy according to the law. It's just too hard. But if you read the rest of his sermon and follow the rest of Jesus' ministry, you'll see that's not really what he's saying. Jesus isn't saying you have to follow the letter of the law, but he's not saying the letter of the law doesn't matter because it's too hard. Jesus is saying the letter of the law of Leviticus doesn't matter, or you don't have to follow it anymore because it was too easy. It wasn't aspirational enough. It let us off the hook because we could just follow a bunch of rules and feel good about ourselves and not have our hearts transformed. And so the rest of that sermon is all about what your life looks like when holiness takes root from the inside out. And Jesus begins this part of the sermon by saying, not be holy as your father is holy. He says, be perfect as your father is perfect. Jesus just keeps raising the bar. It's almost easier to follow Leviticus than it is to follow Jesus because Listen to what he does to the Levitical rules by the letter of the law. Listen to what he does. He starts with the easiest one. He says, you know, Leviticus said, don't murder. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, this is great. I've got that one. That one's easy. Don't murder. I haven't murdered anyone. Anybody here ever murdered anyone? Any murderers? Y'all are scaring me. I need to see some head shaking or something. No murderers in the house. That's great. I'm glad to hear it. If there is, I'm glad you're here as well. Just don't tell anyone about your past. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe don't sign up to teach the kids. So, uh, we have rules. <laughs> so, uh, don't murder. And everybody's like, I haven't murdered. I'm good. And then Jesus is, he, he just doubles down. He says, that's great. You don't murder, but that's not good enough. The law says don't murder, but I'm telling you, if you've ever been angry at a brother or sister to the point of calling them a fool... You might as well have killed them in God's eyes. You're a murderer. And that's, look, that's every day for me. <laughs> At least twice a day. Morning rush hour and evening rush hour. I'm guilty. I'm a murderer. 
according to the holiness of, of God, right? And then uh, he, he goes on and he's like, uh, hey, don't, uh, don't sleep around. Don't commit adultery. That's what Leviticus said, right? And everybody's like, yeah, I've never done that. I mean, it's harder than murder, you know, but, <laughs> but I've never slept around either. But, but Jesus says anybody that looks at someone who's not their spouse lustfully has already committed adultery with them. They've already slept with them in their heart. Jeez. Can we just go back to Leviticus? Like, that was easier than this. You see what I'm saying? Jesus doesn't cancel out Leviticus. Jesus ups the ante, y'all. Jesus calls you to aspire higher than just religion. He calls you to aspire higher than just words on a page. He calls you to aspire and be, be inspired from the inside out, to be holy from your heart outward. Leviticus said, an eye for an eye. And we thought that was enough. And Jesus said, no, it's not good enough just to take one eye for another. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, this was what it meant when Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to set an even higher bar to call us to aspire toward his holiness. But how easy is it, really? the day-to-day life you live. Just be honest with me here. How easy is it to just settle for the status quo? And again, I'm not judging you. I am, if anything, I'm just owning the fact that this is all we've ever been told to do. Our culture, even in church, y'all, all we've ever been told to do is just live a decent life Go to the best school you can and do the best you can to get good grades. And then, and then you graduate and then you find the best job you can. And then you find the best person you can to get married. And then you have the best kids you can and you raise them. And, and you, you buy the best house you can. And then, and then you just have a good, you take the best vacations you can. And, and you, you save as much money as you can. And this, that's what we've all been taught. And I'm telling you, that is like the lowest common denominator, y'all. That is just like, if that's what you're measuring your success by, that is what it means to settle for the status quo. And we all do it all the time. And what I want to ask you honestly is, what does that do to the human soul? To settle for the status quo I just described, where does that leave you? I will tell you where. Because I talk to people, multiple people every week who achieve everything they've ever been told to achieve and more. They are overachievers according to the status quo, but they feel empty and dead inside. I talked to a couple of guys this week, actually one of whom said, and he's highly successful and he's got the graduate degree and he's got the dream job and he's got the dream wife and he's got a beautiful daughter and he's got this life, right? A new BMW and all this stuff. And he said, on the way here to talk to you, I sat at a red light and I wondered why I would even keep living because I feel empty inside. And I just I asked him what I ask everyone. I ask everyone that I have this kind of conversation with. I just say, what are you living for? And that's when the sadness sets in. Oftentimes people don't have an answer. And you can say, I'm living for my family. Or I'm living for my kids. And I'm living, I'm doing what I'm, I'm working 100 hours a week to pay for my kids' college. Okay, your kid's 14, and they're going to go to college in three years, four years. And what will you be living for then? Or what if they say, Dad, 
I don't want to go to college. What if they say, Dad, I'm moving out, and I don't want to have anything to do with you because I never knew you. What if life doesn't go according to plan? What are you living for then? Those are the moments that we find ourselves sitting at red lights in a brand new European car other people would kill to drive, wondering if we even want to live anymore. And these conversations, they hit me hard, especially in light of the week we just had and these headlines that are just devastating us, right? Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. I'm a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain. I've always, I don't know why, I just, I, he's like my spirit animal, you know, like I just, the travel and the, the life he lives and the, the food and all this. And then he's gone. And I don't know the darkness someone goes through in the moments leading up to them taking their own life. I, I know that the suicide rate in America has skyrocketed since 1996, up 25, 30%. I did a little research on Bourdain's life, just my own grieving, right? And I found some quotes of his, and one of the quotes that I found from him, and again, I'm not piling on or being judgmental. I just, I just think it says something. He said, your body is not a temple. He said, your body is a playground. Just enjoy the ride. And in light of last week's sermon where I expressly said, your body <laughs> is a temple, it's not like I'm right and he's wrong. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just, I'm just saying that when, when you're just living for the moment or living down to the status quo and just trying to eat, drink, and be merry, then eventually you hit a wall. We all hit that wall. Why? Because that's not what you're made to do. It's not what you're created for. You're created to aspire. You're created to live for more. You're created to reflect the glory and the holiness of God and to chase the life he has for you. You're created to say no to more of the stuff that's holding you back. And you're created to live a different kind of life. And so that doesn't mean the same thing it means for everybody. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to leave your job and sell your house and move to Africa and be a missionary. I'm not saying that necessarily. I'm just saying it, it does mean changing your priorities a little bit. It might mean changing the way you invest the money that you are blessed to make. It might mean changing the way that you spend your family time and, and making sure you're spending your family time honoring God or your free time or your lunch time or your time at work with your employees. Are, are you a living witness to the glory of God in the eyes of your employees? They know what you're really living for. They know the God you love by the way you're living and the way you speak. This is convicting even for me because even as a pastor, as a, as a church leader, like from the outside looking in, we look really healthy now, right? The story has grown to, to you know, if anybody's wildest imaginations, you know, we, we could never have dreamed this up where we are. But do you know what it means to have a thousand people involved in a, in a new church? Do you know what it means if, if people are just coming to see the show on Sunday and that's it? It means absolutely nothing if that's what we're living for, if that's the status quo. And it is in a lot of churches. If we're not living for more and aspiring toward holiness, the rest of it, just numbers on a page, man. It's just meaningless. And so this is a, this is a struggle that we all face to just kind of be zombies that are constantly chasing more 
or, uh, or, or to be people in search of the God life. If you've been living the status quo, I need you to know that there is a better way to live your life. God still calls people to live a cut above, and he's calling you to live a cut above today. And there is more to live for than the stuff you've been settling for. And if you're a single person on the dating scene, God is calling you to aspire to date differently. Whether it's online or in person or however it is you're dating, dating's great. But you are called to date differently than the status quo. Don't put up with the stuff that the lowest common denominator out there would have you put up with. You're better than that. That's not who you are. If you're, a, if you're a parent, like parent differently. Don't parent down to the expectations of the world around you. Don't parent down to Facebook's expectations of parenting. Aspire in your parenting. Aspire to raise kids who know God, who know the Bible, who just want to impact the world in Jesus' name. Raise up kids that, that want to be holy. You know, if you're a student, there's a better way to be a student. If you're working at a regular job, as many of you are, I know this is the most pressing question on people's minds right now is, I can't leave my job. I've got a, I've got a mortgage. I've got a family. And I'm not telling you to leave your job. I mean, if you're an accountant and a lawyer, we got a lot of accountants and lawyers in here. If you're, you know, a doctor or if you're in oil and gas, I'm not saying you got to leave those professions to be holy. I'm just saying there's a different way. There's a different way to live. You can be a, a man or a woman of God who just happens to have a really boring job. <laughs> like you can be a man or woman of God who invests the fruit of that job differently. You see yourself as a living witness in the office. You see yourself as an investor in God's priorities, whether it's here at the story or anywhere else. You know you're called to live differently to spend differently, to vacation differently, and work differently. Here's the difference really is when holiness and, and, and the heart of God is your priority, you find yourself having to fit the other pieces of your life around your pursuit of the heart of God rather than fitting church or religion into your otherwise busy life. That's what you're created for, to set your heart on fire for God and his holiness. When you do that, you find the life that you were always meant to have, the abundant life that Jesus came to give you.